Good evening. I'd like to congratulate you for surviving the first 24 hours on retreat. The fact that you're still here is a good sign. I know a few of you have had a few thoughts about escape. But, and as you can see, it's, for some of you anyway, um, we get to see the, the difference between our expectations and reality. And I'm always curious about that, that discord, uh, particularly on something like a silent retreat where we had a lot of ideas and expectations and fantasies about what it was going to be like. And um, you probably didn't realize that it was as hard as it's going to be, as it is. Otherwise, you might not have signed up. <laughs> the sleepiness. So listening to people talk in the groups, um, as well as people having very positive experiences, also just the challenge of trying to be present, trying to pay attention, try to see through the fog and the dullness and the sleepiness and the restlessness and crazy, busy minds. You notice that, right? Yeah. So that's why we congratulate you for your practice, because it's it's work. This is uh, not a spa. It's not spirit rock, spa light. It's comfortable, but it's not easy. So often the question comes up, there's often doubts arise in the first period of retreat. What am I doing here? Why did I sign up for this? I thought I was going to be in bliss and light and clarity and I'm just lost in the mire of my own thoughts and morass of complaints and projections and preferences. So I want to talk this evening about the context of why we're here, why we're doing what we do, and talk about the practice of mindfulness, what that is, how we cultivate it, what the Buddha had to say about various aspects of mindfulness, uh, to try and give some perspective on, on the work and the practice that you're doing, to make sense of it. There's a cartoon that I noticed, it was pinned to the notice board of the dining room of Sister Center, Insight Meditation Society, and it's a three-caption cartoon about the history of man. So the first caption just says history of man. The second caption, there's a man with a thought bubble with a confused look on his his face thinking, what the hell am I doing here? And the third caption is the end. (laughs) So we're in the middle section. (laughs) What the hell am I doing here? What is this thing called me and meditation and life and practice and what's that all about? So hopefully over the time, over the days, it will become clearer to you what it's all about. Or at least leave you with delving more deeply into the mystery, which is always interesting in revealing more questions and inviting more inquiry. I've had this magazine um, article uh, advert for a long time, and it somehow seems to follow me around. Um, it's an it's a advertisement, which is now very dated, but it still seems relevant to this point in the retreat. And it's, an, uh, it's a meditation CD set. 
called the Ultra Meditation uh, set. And on the front page, there's a picture of a woman meditating and levitating, looking very blissed out with a set of headphones. And it says, in 28 minutes, you'll be meditating like a Zen monk. (laughs) On the inside, it says, the five-level ultra meditation system for transcendence, peak experience, and discovering your place in the universe, all in 28 minutes. (laughs) Well, you've been here for a lot longer than 28 minutes, and uh, you can either have your money back or you can buy this later after the retreat. (laughs) I'm selling them at a discount. (laughs) So... Hence, one of the misconceptions about meditation, that we'll be meditating and levitating in 28 minutes. Not so easy. Not so easy. And it's not that we're doing something wrong. It means that we're doing very deep work, very deep practice, this practice of mindfulness. Simple, easy, but also very profound. So I started this practice... Um, probably about 30 years ago now uh, in East End of London. And um, at the time, Buddhism and meditation was still very obscure and weird. Uh, and I, was a, I, was a, I had a white mohawk, punk rocker, made my own crazy clothes. And um, when I got into Buddhist practice, my parents thought that was more weird than my punk rock phase. (laughs) And I remember how transformative it was when I found the practice. I was very angry, very confused, lost, as we often are in our late teens. And um, uh, the simplicity and the, the, uh, the effectiveness of turning attention back to look at our own mind to look at my, uh, my own inner experience, which I'd never done before because my attention had always been out, outward. And seeing the possibility of learning to understand my mind, learning to see how I caused a lot of my own suffering was very revolutionary. And it shifted a lot of attention from blame and anger out there to, oh, oh, shit, it's actually in here. <laughs> this is where I need to pay attention. And it was, I felt eternally grateful for stumbling across this meditation center in an obscure part of East London 30 years ago because it gave me some time. As you see, it takes time, not just 28 minutes, 28 years in my case, <laughs> to practice, to develop, to, to inquire, to look at my mind, to look at what uh, causes joy and peace and well-being, how to access that anywhere through the practice of presence, awareness, returning home. And one of the things I love about teaching this practice is I get to see how it transforms people. Just listening to people in the groups today, and and this will be the case through this retreat and many, many other retreats, working with students one-on-one, just seeing how it transforms people. I teach a class down the, the lower meditation hall, And uh, it's called Essential Dharma. It's a year-long course covering the foundations of Buddhist practice. And uh, a student came uh, a couple of years ago, and she was she came because she was about to get fired because she was so so difficult to work with. Um, 
And this was sort of the last resort. Okay, I'll go meditate, see if I can fix myself or do something. Um, and she took the first 10-week course on mindfulness and some various other teachings. And people were asking her, what, what, what's happened to you? What, I, don't, I don't recognize you. you. You've become a different person. You're, you're so much easier to get along with. You're so much, so more, so much more amicable and easygoing and relaxed. And, and then she carried on doing the next two semesters. And at the end of the year, she got this glowing report which was a very uh, drastic turnaround from about to being fired the year before. So, and I see these stories all the time of people being transformed by this very simple, very ordinary practice. And sometimes when we're in the midst of a retreat, the thought comes, you know, what the hell is trying to follow my breath, which is so damn elusive? What has this got to do with my life or my suffering or my freedom or my community or helping save the planet? And it can seem very distant and oblique what the connection is. Hopefully over time you will see that the transformation that we do with ourselves and our inner experience and our reactivity of our mind has everything to do with how we live our lives and how we are in the world. And we are the world and we transform the world through transforming ourselves. So sometimes that requires a little bit of faith at this point in the retreat. So I just encourage you to stay with the practice and trust that this practice, as Harry mentioned, has been carried out, engaged with, practiced by millions of people all over the world for, for thousands of years um, and has had tremendous transformative effect on many people. This is from a uh, student also from that class. He said, The practice allows me to sit with my difficult daily situations without developing my habitual reactive or escapist tendencies. They still occur, but it's now though as as if I possess the beginnings of an internal reference point or place that is neither intellectual, mental, or filled with any previous stuff. It's like a spring of inherent purity. So what's been interesting for me to see in the development of mindfulness is how uh, widely it's spreading in the culture. I do some teaching uh, outside of Spirit Rock, do some mindfulness teaching in various companies, um, Google and Procter & Gamble and some companies that you might not think of that would be embracing enlightened teachings. Um, And it's just interesting to see the receptivity and the, again the transformative effect it has, especially when it's done in the context of a workplace um, or in schools now spreading to a lot of schools throughout the country, different programs, wonderful organization, mindful schools and mindfulness without borders. Um, so I'm personally incredibly heartened by how this practice is uh, reaching into mainstream life, which when I first started practicing was inconceivable that we would have a congressman who practices mindfulness, comes to retreat at Spirit Rock, and is creating uh, programs in Ohio for, you know, for, the, for various uh, very impoverished school districts, to, for teachers and children to practice mindfulness. 
So back in when the Buddha was uh, uh, studying and training and cultivating his own path of awakening, mindfulness wasn't as yet uh, practiced in the way that he developed and taught it and was quite a radical practice as uh, he came to teach it. And I want to quote a few things from him this evening. This is the first. He says, Just as in the last month of the rains in autumn, when the sky is clear and cloudless, the sun on ascending the sky overpowers the space immersed in darkness, shines and blazes and dazzles. In the same way, all skillful qualities are rooted in mindfulness, converge in mindfulness, and mindfulness is reckoned the foremost among them. So one of the things you will get to discover as we develop mindfulness, as we develop this quality of presence, that it pulls forth other wholesome qualities, attention, kindness, empathy, inquiry. Wholesome qualities that enhance our well-being. So you've been practicing mindfulness for 24 hours. What is it? What is mindfulness? Anybody like to say? What is this thing called mindfulness? Aware, aware attention. Aware attention. Okay. What else? Non-judgmental. Non-judgmental. Yeah, it's an important quality of mindfulness. Yeah, what else? Paying attention to whatever's going on in the moment. Uh huh. Being present. Being present, attending to the present moment. What else? Openness. Openness. Mm-hmm. Noticing your own response. Noticing your own response, your own yeah attitude to what's happening. Mm-hmm. Very important. Stepping back from your experience. Stepping back from your experience. So a sense of having a bigger perspective. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Could also be understood as, as actually stepping forward and engaging more intimately with experience. Both happen simultaneously. Yeah. Anything else? Well, you'll get a written test at the end of the retreat, so it's just good practice. I'm just kidding. So one of the ways I like to think about it is it's a quality of simply knowing what's happening as it's happening. Of attending to the present with awareness, without judgment, with intention, with clarity. There's a cartoon from Gary Larson, uh, the great Dharma teacher uh, from the far side. And so he has... he this picture of a bunch of cows eating grass in the meadow and one of them's sort of standing out from the herd looking somewhat perplexed and the caption underneath says wait a minute this is grass they've been feeding us grass (laughs) so sometimes mindfulness has an element of surprise we wake up out of the fog of our lives, of our deluded thinking, and we see more clearly what's going on. So the Buddha had some nice similes for mindfulness, which I think give different ways of understanding uh, or different doorways into it. So one of the similes is um, uh, 
the simile of the watchtower, where we're standing high, so that you know, in, traditionally the watchtower would be high, so we could scan a vast area. So sometimes mindfulness gives that sense of a panoramic vision, of a, bro- a breadth and a depth to our perspective. One of the images I like, one of the similes he gave was the simile of the cow herder. So back in the day, and still in, in India, you'll see this a lot, um, you'll see uh, young boys and girls cow, as cow herders, and they have looking after maybe a dozen or 20 buffaloes or cows, and they, they're mostly tending to them so they don't go trampling in the nearby uh, farmer's fields and the crops. Um, but the, the, the image he gave was the cow herder is leaning his back against the tree, a tree in the shade, relaxed but vigilant. So it's, it's, it's pointing to this quality of that we stay relaxed in the body, at ease, but we're also very alert. So we're not like this over our experience or our breath like a cat over a mouse hole. And we're not in the lazy boy chair conked out. But we're in between. We're balanced, we're relaxed, we're poised. Another simile was a surgeon's probe. Sometimes we, we use the cloudy and the precision and the concentration to be very, very finely attuned to our experience, like a surgeon's probe. He also gave an, an, an image of uh, a gatekeeper. So in, in traditionally in walled towns, there would be somebody who mans the gate, who watches for uh, whoever is entering and leaving the fortified town. And the, the, the analogy is pointing to how mindfulness is, a, is like a guard uh, for the mind so it doesn't let in unwholesome states and skillful states of mind that cause suffering. There's also an, an, a contemporary image of uh, mindfulness being like surfing. We're learning how to ride the waves of the mind or our experience or life and not drown. So as many of you reported in the groups today, uh, one of the first insights that we see, and I pointed to this 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 morning, is how much we are lost in our coconut. Achan Buddhadasa, a great uh, Buddhist teacher from the last century from Thailand, when asked about his, what he thought of Western meditators and Western students, he said they're lost in thought. Lost in thought. Anybody feel like they're lost in thought today? Did you see how lost you were in thought? This is actually a great insight to see. Oh, it's amazing how much time we spend thinking. And life and breath and food and relationships and everything else kind of drifts by. And we're lost thinking about it, analyzing, speculating, drifting, daydreaming. When I was teaching a retreat here not so long ago, uh, an architect was uh, on retreat, and she said she spent half the retreat looking at the structure of this <laughs> of this building, wondering where they put the beams and the supporting buttresses and how they got the So some people get fixated on the color of the wall back here, the interior designers. One woman told me in a class, she said, I've been lost fantasizing about an unavailable man for the last three years. Like that's the subject of every meditation. 
is this pursuit of a man that's unavailable. So one of the things we get to see with our, with us with, as we pay attention to our mind, to our thinking mind, is that us as um, as our thinking is often very uh, painful and leads us to really difficult states of mind. It would be fine if we thought about paradise, maybe, um, but we don't. We go to the scary, ca- catastrophic places. Uh, Worst-case scenarios. So Harvard uh, Medical School did some research recently on uh, how much we daydream. And they tracked people through their cell phone. They would, they would check in periodically through the day to see whether they were present or not while they were doing activities like working or exercising uh, and um, the report, the, the findings were very interesting. There's many studies now have been done since then. Um, so, how much do you think we're daydreaming? 10%? 20%? 40%? Self revelation going on over there. 50%? It was 46.9% of the day that we're, we're not present to, to, to activity. And what was most interesting about the study was that they also asked how the person felt after having been daydreaming. And about 94% of the time, people felt less happy after daydreaming, after wandering to the places that we often wonder that are, that are catastrophic or difficult. Or there was some depression about coming back to sitting back in your cubicle at work. Um, but the net result was that that daydreaming, that thinking, didn't support well-being. There's been other studies that, that track that we're more spacing out about 60 to 70% of the time. So we're more, pre- we're more present during exercise, most present during sex, less present in conversation. So it's very interesting. So you get to see as you go through your day here where you're present, where you're not present, how much you're present, do you check out completely when you're in your work meditation? Or do you check out when you're bathing? Or when you're you know, fiddling around your room and packing, you're packing your suitcase a few times in the morning? Where is it you, do you check out eating, walking around? Or is it in the meditation? Or is it everywhere? <laughs> and again, it's, when we start to see how much we're checked out, that's actually a good thing because we're, we're seeing where we are. We need to see, we need to start from where we are. We need to understand where we are. We need to see the habits, the tendencies, and what, what the fascination is. We get a lot of pleasure from our thinking. It takes us away from unpleasant experience we don't want to be with. You know, it's very common when we're sitting with the breath and we felt 553 breaths today or however many you felt, and the mind gets bored. So what do we do when we get bored? We create a story, we create a fantasy, we create some drama, we, or we go back to one. We'd rather, be doing, we'd rather be stimulated than present to our experience that's not so entertaining. Or the belief that somewhere else is better. These thoughts, these beliefs, these fantasies often have built within them 
there is somewhere better than here, like the Billy Collins poem was pointing to. So why do you check out? Have you noticed today your tendencies, your habits? Anybody like to say what, what takes you away? What's the pull? What, what's, what's, what, what pulls you into daydream? What takes you away from here? Yes. One thing that I saw today is that I, I do notice my, myself uh, um, slipping into daydreams a lot. Um, and I had always thought that it was just something that I did to, um, to avoid uncomfortable or unpleasant feelings. And today I was just seeing that it's, I, it seems like it's beyond that. It's just compulsive. Mm-hmm. Just, uh, so a compulsive habit. The habit of wandering, uh huh. Yeah, very common. Yes. You seem to think I have really important thoughts to be thought. Oh yeah. I keep coming back to them like, oh, that was really important. Like thinking I'm, I've lost my train of thought, and that's worse than being present. Uh huh. Yeah. So I keep thinking, I have to keep, keep at it. So keep thinking that that these really important thoughts have to be thought through. So we often do a little bargaining with ourselves. I'll just finish this thought, then I'll do the practice. I'll really get back to it. Seriously, when I just resolve this work issue, it'll take one minute, and then I'm done, and I can put it aside. (laughs) Fifteen minutes later, we're lost somewhere, and the bell goes. We have no idea where we are. We're in Italy eating pizza. and (laughs) So, yeah, so the the over-validation or importance of our thinking. Mm -hmm. Anything else? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So noticing when the body's sorry. That would just suck me out of right. Practice. Right. So noticing when the body's uncomfortable, in pain and aches, the mind again not wanting to be present to unpleasantness, to difficulty, to pain, will take us away. We'll go into fantasy land as a way of avoiding simply being with our experience. Yeah. And again, to to, to see this. It's really important as we develop mindfulness, we get to see more and more of our experience and our stuff and our habits and our tendencies. And it's very easy to then feel more judgmental about ourselves. And it's re- that's why there's such a strong emphasis on compassion, on kindness and forgiveness, because we need that as we see these habits and these tendencies. And especially when we do see the ways that we're causing more suffering for ourselves. And we see how compulsive they are, how, how strong these habits are. There's really no place for judgment. It just, that's just adding more suffering unto suffering. We just have to have compassion. You know, the brain is so hardwired to strategize, to, to find ways mentally out of our pain, to anticipate, to anticipate threats and possible fearful scenarios. So we need compassion for that. Is that a hand up there? Yeah. Yes. So the question is why that why we why the brain thinks that way? Why, why does that end up leading to 
It's a good question. I'm sure many of you are asking, why do I have to be present to this pain? How is it serving me? So there's a wonderful quote by Achan Chah who says, by running away from suffering, we, we run towards it. And um, so I, I'll tell a story about that from my own experience. So when I started meditating, I noticed that, I, that just below the level of my sort of ordinary day-to-day awareness, I felt a lot of sadness. And, um, but I didn't want to feel sad, so I didn't feel it. So I just sort of kept it like at arm's length, as we do with a lot of difficult, painful, unpleasant stuff. And I noticed that the sadness stayed around. And year by year went by, and I still would check in. There was still this sort of base level of sadness, and I still didn't want to feel it. And it took me about 10 years to go, okay, it's about time I actually started feeling this sadness and, and letting it in, allowing it, exploring, feeling and, feeling and sensing into it, and understanding what it was. And uh, through the process of doing that, it, allow, it allowed it to move through, and it released <coughs> And a certain period of time, I noticed, ah, I'm no longer sad. I'm no longer, I, don't, I no longer have this baseline of sadness. But those years that I kept, kept it at bay, it didn't resolve it, it didn't transform it, it didn't allow me to understand it, it just kept it at bay, which meant it stayed around. So, um, as I mentioned today about working with pain, as we'll talk more about working with difficulty, Normally, our coping strategy is to just check out or to, is to find, you know, we go to the fridge for the Ben and Jerry's or whatever. We don't learn how to be with, you know, if we can change the situation, then we, can, we change it or, we, or we, we, we adjust our posture or whatever we can do and that's fine. But there are many situations where we, where we have no choice, where we have to deal with uncomfortable pains or sadness or sounds or difficult family situations or global situations. And so the more that we learn to practice with these things, the more we see that the suffering comes from our reactivity to them, our resistance to them, our avoidance of them, and that we can actually find a place of ease and peace in the midst of a lot of very distressing, difficult situations. So that may, you may have to take that on faith at this point, but as, you, as we explore it, you know, we'll work, you know, play with that as you're sitting with physical pain, with boredom, with restlessness. See what happens when you turn towards it, when you feel it. So much of our suffering comes from the fear of actually experiencing something. When we actually turn and face it, it's like, oh. So an example, I was teaching a mindfulness-based stress reduction class in uh, Kaiser uh, Hospital up in Santa Rosa and um, working with chronic pain patients, and a woman came in after about the fourth or fifth class, which is often when the, tr- the shift would happen because the, the, the practice sort of took, would take root for people. And she said, I've had this chronic neck pain for 10 years. I've been through every doctor and surgeon, every medication that's possible. Nothing helped, nothing resolved it. And so I came to this class, and at some point between the last class and this class, I was meditating, and I decided instead of running away from the pain and contracting around it, I would actually turn and feel it, which she'd never really done in the 10 years because the habitual contraction and avoidance and resistance and reaction and hatred to pain. And so she took her attention into it and softened the, 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 the tightening, the, the resistance, the contraction. And she felt like she got right to the core of the pain, which was sort of a piercing, nerve-tingling, 
sensation. And what she discovered was when she actually took her attention into it with presence, it was bearable. It actually wasn't as horrific as she thought it was going to be. And something profoundly relaxed because all that fear and terror of the pain of, 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 that she'd built up from, from 10 years of avoiding it somehow dissipated. It didn't make the pain go away, but it, it, her relationship to it profoundly transformed. And that's really what we're looking at in this practice. We're both looking at what's happening in the moment and we're looking at our relationship to it. Because it's the relationship or our attitude, our reaction or our acceptance is the pivotal point for whether something is experienced as painful or something shifts from pain to suffering. So there's a little equation that sometimes is said, suffering equals is pain times resistance. Suffering equals pain times resistance. It's not really that simple, but there's, there's, there's something to that equation. The more that resist and we fight and we protest, we actually add suffering onto the, what's already painful. So, um, some things that we need on this path, is, and I mentioned, spoke a little to these this morning, but I want to just uh, go over some of that material. One of the things that we need in, in spades is patience. You know, we can see how much patience we need with, with our mind and with ourselves and with our reactivity and the wandering and the meandering. You know, especially because there's such a misconception about meditation that meditation is... How many people thought they were going to have this quiet, peaceful, blissful meditation time here? Come on, how many? I mean, it's in the culture that meditation is, you know, this calm, peaceful thing that you do and it makes you happy. And, you know, and that, that, that can be true. And <laughs> we get to work with our stuff. We get to work with what gets in the way of that. And the Buddha said, the mind is naturally pure and radiant and is affected by the, the um, is obscured, that natural radiance is obscured by the visiting tendencies of mind that we're all seeing today. And Harry will talk more to those tomorrow about what those are. So I'm going to read um, something that we often read here um, that speaks to this, the, 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 the value, the importance of patience and persistence. It's called Autobiography in Five Short Chapters by Portia Nelson. So it goes like this, and see where you, where, where you fit in the five chapters in your practice. I walk down the street, there's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I don't see it. I fall in. It takes forever to, to find a way out. Chapter two, I walk down the same street, there's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in. I can't believe I'm in the same place. It still isn't my fault. It takes forever. To, it takes a long time to get out. Chapter three, I walk down the same street, there's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it's there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter four, I walk down the same street. There's a hole in the sidewalk. I see it's there. I walk around it. Chapter five, I walk down a different street. <laughs> so that might be 10 years <laughs> to get to, like for me with the sadness, it was 10 years. You know, hopefully for you it's 10 minutes or 10, who knows, 10 meditation sessions. Yes, yeah, so we all have our places. You know, this is, this is a movement from unconsciousness to consciousness. And this is the trajectory of the path. We move from unconsciousness, from 
blindness, reactivity, falling in habits and grooves that are painful, that are difficult, whether it's jealousy or anger or frustration or self-pity or blame or who knows where we go. And then we start and then we shift from blame to, oh, yeah, I see it. I still do it. It's a habit. We see the strengths of our habits. And then over time we, we see, oh, these are habits and I still have choice. I have possibility for transformation. So there's a, uh, a phrase that I like um, uh, that speaks to this in the practice. It's, it's, this is borrowed from psychology. Um, response flexibility. So what mindfulness does is create space and presence and pause. It's cre- it creates a pause in the mind so we have a chance to not just act out habitually, reactively, but actually to make a choice, to make a wise choice. Wise mindfulness leads to wise action. So I want to read something from Viktor Frankl about that, who survived the concentration camps. He said, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space lies our freedom and our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our happiness. Between stimulus and response, there is a space So between the pain in my knee and my response, there's a space when we're mindful. In that space lies our freedom and our power to choose our response, to react, to hate, or to be with it, to notice it, to relax the contraction around it. In that responsiveness lies our growth and our happiness. So to go back to that, your question, so... A friend of mine was practicing in a monastery in Thailand, and as is often the case, there's a lot of animals around. In this case, there was a couple of barking dogs running across the courtyard, and so people went out to see what the commotion was, and they were chasing a poisonous snake. So the and of course the snake was running away from the dogs, and was looking for a place to to of safety. And there was a monk with his robes sitting under a tree. And to the snake, that looked like a pretty safe place because the monk was still. So the poison snake snuck snuck up under his robes. And uh, this is when you get to really see how good your practice is. (laughs) (laughs) So we'll bring some snakes in later just to see. Um, So the monk being, being, I imagine, a great meditator, just, well, also he didn't really have much choice. He had a poisonous snake up his up his robes. So he sat still and the dogs came and they were barking at him and he just sat still, present, breathing, finding that place of response flexibility or dying. <laughs> you practice usually, you know, this is why we practice. We practice for these moments, you know. So over time the dogs got bored, they, they went away and over time the snake eventually came out of the robes and went on his merry way. So um, this is why we practiced for those moments of, of you know, so you're not maybe going to get a poisonous snake landing up your trouser leg, but um, actually there was a, from this, my same friend, uh, he was teaching a course in, in Australia and this person, a, a student, had, had a lot of trouble with letting go and was sitting in the meditation hall and... Uh, all of a sudden, my friend who was teaching heard this sound, uh, help, help. And what happened, this place was in the jungle, 
and uh, tin roofs, the roofs get really hot, and if there's snakes up there, when it gets too hot, they just fall down to the ground to get away from the heat. And this snake landed in this person who was having trouble with letting go, landed right in his lap, <laughs> and was coiled up and looking at him like this. <laughs> and so he, he, he kind of whispered out the side of his mouth, is this poisonous? And so my friend asked the person who ran the center whether it was poisonous, and of course it was, but they didn't tell him that because they might freak out. So he just had to sit there and work on letting go until, again, you know, you sit long enough, the snake will get bored and run in his merry way. So... So part of mindfulness is learning how to meet our experience as it is, whether it's a snake, whether it's a pain in the knee, whether it's our wandering mind. I want to read something from uh, Chosen Bay's uh, it was dedication to the teacher Harada Roshi. And I want to read this because it really speaks to this idea of how we meet our experience as it is with this quality of mindfulness. I vow to choose what is. If there is cost, I choose to pay. If there is need, I choose to give. If there is pain, I choose to feel. If there is sorrow, I choose to grieve. When burning, I choose heat. When calm, I choose peace. When starving, I choose hunger. When happy, I choose joy. Whom I encounter, I choose to meet. What I shoulder, I choose to bear. When it is my death, I choose to die. Where this takes me, I choose to go. Being with what is, I respond to what is. So do you get in that, the quality of meeting? Oh yeah, whatever it is. So from the perspective, mindfulness has no preference. It's simply meeting experience with awareness, with attention. And then we get to see what the responsiveness is in the mind. And with practice, it facilitates a greater responsiveness. So one definition of mindfulness is an appropriate response to the moment, a skillful response to the moment. So other important qualities of mindfulness, the quality of beginner's mind, which is, again, essential, especially when we're doing a practice as simple as being with the breath, how to be with the breath without the conceptual overlay of our mind of thinking we know what the breath is or thinking we know what anything is. Bare attention has this quality, this quality of beginner's mind that meets our experience with curiosity, with wonder, with, with the question, what is this? What is this moment? What is this thing called breath? You know, we think we know what a breath is, but each breath is unique. It's a moment of organic life moving itself. What's a thought? Have you ever paid attention to what a thought is? They're so powerful and so fascinating, and yet next time you're meditating and a thought arises, bring your attention to it. What is a thought? It's incredibly ephemeral and fleeting and incredibly powerful if we give it that power. What is an emotion? We'll be exploring feelings and emotions in the next few days. 
What is an emotion? What is anger? And to be curious about your experience. What is peace? Often people say, well, there's nothing much going on in my practice. Well, what is that? What is it like when nothing's going on? There's always something going on. It might be calm or peaceful or neutral or easeful or quiet or spacious, but there's something. So as we've been pointing to today, we start with mindfulness of the body. The body is always in the present moment. The senses are always in the present moment. So we're shifting our preference from the thinking mind to the physical world, the sensory world. The Buddha said, if you're going to place your attention, place it in the body, it moves slower than the mind. The mind is so fickle and flickery and fast, pulls us away from simply being here. This is from the Buddha. There is one thing that when cultivated and regularly practiced leads to deep spiritual intention, to peace, to mindfulness and clear comprehension, to vision and knowledge, to a happy life here and now, and to the culmination of wisdom and awakening. And what is that one thing? It's mindfulness centered in the body. So that's a lot of uh, interesting benefits he's pointing to. Mindfulness, awakening, happy life here and now. And again, this may take an act of faith. How does being present in my body lead to freedom, lead to happiness? Where else do we think we'll find happiness other than the present moment? What's the greatest support for the present moment is being in our body, being with our breath, being with our footsteps, being with sounds, being with sensations in the body. So right now, what's happening as you're listening to this talk? Are you aware of your body? Or you just ears and thoughts. So just notice as you're sitting. Can you include the awareness of your body? Whether it's tired or energized or fatigued or restless. Can you include that as part of your practice? A friend of mine went through a very severe bike accident uh, probably a year and a half ago now. And um, he's practiced for a long time and some of you will know him and also has a strong emphasis of mindfulness of the body. And I saw as he was in hospital, bruised and black and blue and how that practice of meeting his experience, grounding in his body, really helped carry him through that experience. Helped not fight and resist that experience. And how that steadied his mind in a really traumatic uh, situation. This is from Achan Mun, who is one of the great teachers of Thailand, teacher of Achan Char and others. He said, never allow the mind to leave the body. Examine its nature, see its impermanent, selfless, unsatisfactory nature while sitting, walking, standing, or lying down. When its true nature is seen fully and lucidly by the heart, the wonders of the world will become clear. In this way, the purity of the mind can shine forth timeless and delivered. So mindfulness is both paying attention, but also mindfulness facilitates understanding. It facilitates wisdom. It facilitates understanding the nature of who we are, the nature of the body. And as he said, when the true nature of the body is seen fully and lucidly by the heart, the wonders of the world become clear. The purity of the mind can shine forth.
So this practice of mindfulness, sustained attention, supports understanding, supports wisdom, supports clarity. So there's many, many things to say about this practice. I'm running out of time here, so I'm just going to speak to a couple other things. Um, and one is to something the Buddha pointed to. So these teachings are taken from the Satipatthana Sutta, which, is, which means the, the foundations of mindfulness. And the Buddha spoke to, to cultivating mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of feelings, mindfulness of mind states, mindfulness of what he called dharmas, aspects of our experience, And again, I want to keep orienting us towards the mindfulness of the body. And again, I'd like to read from the sutta. He said, the, yo- the yogi acts clearly, the yogi is a meditator, that's you, acts clearly knowing when eating and drinking and tasting. He acts clearly knowing when defecating and urinating, clearly knowing when walking, sitting, standing, falling asleep, waking up, talking and keeping silent. So that means even in the bathroom, he here now. That's a joke. It's a really bad Buddhist joke. Um, but what it's pointing to, there's no breaks. We're cultivating this moment-to-moment continuity of attention. So that's why we emphasize slowing down, why we emphasize that everything has equal importance in the practice. So the Buddha gave this analogy of, imagine you're walking through a busy marketplace in India, you've got a bowl of uh, hot oil on your head that's filled to the brim and there's a man walking behind you uh, with a sword drawn and if you spill as much as a drop he cuts off your head and you're supposed to be chasing this dancing woman through the marketplace that's how we practice mindfulness with that sense of presence and embodiment and steadiness through you know our lives or in this case spirit rock the dining room or wherever you are So as you go about your day, see what it's like to really inhabit your body. This body is a wonderland of mystery and wonder and curiosity. And it's also your your best friend, it's your ally for presence, for awareness. You wanna be in the present moment, be in the body. Notice what's happening. Of course that doesn't mean that we have to open to the full range of Good Housekeeping once reported there were 84 unpleasant sensations in the body. <laughs> Don't know why they had an article on that, but they did. It's very interesting, very Buddhist. Um, so we also get to learn how to work with that. How to be with that. So we can find ease and peace in the middle of that. Understand how that causes suffering in our mind when we react to it. I'm going to close with a reading, a poem from Jennifer Wellwood. And again, it speaks to this idea of turning towards experience. 
with presence, with mindfulness. It's called unconditional. Willing to experience aloneness, I discover connection everywhere. Turning to face my fear, I meet the warrior, the warrior who lives within. Opening to my loss, I gain the embrace of the universe. Surrendering into emptiness, I find fullness without end. Each condition I flee from pursues me. Each condition I welcome transforms me and becomes itself transformed. So let's sit for a few moments. So just sitting where you are, you don't have to change your posture, just taking a moment to just sense into your body, meeting this experience with attention, with a kind awareness. So thank you for your attention. So we'll have about half an hour for walking practice and we'll come back for some sitting at nine o'clock. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.